Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkside on a beautiful May day, and thanks for joining us uh, for our Work as Worship series. As we kick off this morning, looking at the next four to five weeks and how we can see our work as part of God's work and how we can see work as worship. As we open up the series, I want you to imagine yourself sitting in the new Starbucks in Brownsburg. And somebody that you don't know walks up to you. They look you in the eye and they say, the Latin name of a common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Now you'd of course be baffled at what just happened and you'd, all sorts of things would be racing through your mind. And in a sense what you'd be doing is you'd be taking that bizarre occurrence and trying to place it in a larger story. So you might imagine, well, what just happened? Maybe, maybe a junior high boy was just dared by one of his friends to come say that to me, in which case you'd laugh him off. Or perhaps you see this individual come up and share with you the Latin name of a common wild duck, and you determine that they may be mentally ill, in which case within that story you would call a mental health provider to seek to, to serve them. Or perhaps, as that person says that, you determine them to be a foreign spy, and they think that you are the key contact, and that is the code word, histrionicus, 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 in which case you will call the police immediately, right? But whatever the case, you take the event, and you must place it in a larger story to make sense of it. Now, you may have already known that the common name, or the Latin common name of a wild duck was histrionicus, 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 or you may not. But knowing those details and a little bit about it actually doesn't help you unless you can place it in the correct larger story. Your action point will still be wrong. And in a sense, as Pastor Chris said before, that's what we want to do with our work. Okay? We want to take our work that you obviously know a lot about your work, whatever it may be, and we want to place it in the larger story of God's creation of work, how the fall and sin entering the world impacts your work, how God is redeeming your work, and one day will fully restore your work. So we're going to take the next four to five weeks and take the concept of work and place it in a larger story because it's going to not only help us make sense of our work, but it's also going to help us to take appropriate action in our work. It's a very practical series for you. Um, And in Genesis 1, what we see here is God establishing work as his very own idea. And because it's his idea, then the only way that we can truly make sense of our work is to place it in his larger story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now this morning, Bruce just read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. That passage is a, a famous, famous passage. It's known as the cultural mandate, where God mandates humanity, gives them the command to create culture. Maybe you've heard it called the dominion mandate, where God gives humanity dominion over the entire world. Uh, There is a ton that could be said on these three verses. We We could do a sermon series unto itself just on these three verses. But this morning, we're obviously looking at it through the lens of our work. And so at the outset of the series, before I really get into the details of Uh, work through the lens of creation, I want to just define work for us. That may seem obvious to you, but this will be helpful as we go through the whole next month. Um, Your work, if you work full-time over 40 years of your life, you'll spend about 80,000 hours of your life at work. It's pretty significant. You may sleep more than that, but you probably won't do anything else more than that. But, but that said, we do not want to define work as what we get paid to do. Okay, work is much bigger than that as defined by God. 
okay? And so our work then is when we create beauty and when we cultivate order. We'll explain those things as we go. The question you ought to ask, or I hope you're asking, is, okay, Justin, you said this is what work is, but how do we see that in the Scriptures? Because we need to ground our understanding of work in God himself and in the Bible. So look, look back at your copy of the Scriptures. You might still be on page 1. Maybe you're on page 2 by now. But Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, look at that with me as we're defining work. Genesis 2, 3 reads, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the term work you see there is this general term, just what it sounds like, for work. And then it goes on right after that to define what exactly is meant by work that he had done in creation. So we'll start at the end of verse 3 and work our way backwards. That he had done in creation. Again, that word's exactly what it sounds like. These are the things God created. So God's work is to create. Very simple, to create beauty. Everything that God made, he said, was good. God is creating beauty here. The second aspect of work is a little bit tougher to see in the ESV, but we'll keep working our way back. And it says the work that he had done in creation. Because the ESV translation there is not necessarily my favorite. Uh, the New American Standard, I think, helps us a little bit more to understand the original words. I think we've got that on the screen in the New American Standard. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. You see the difference there? It says created and made. And so God's work is that he has created this, and that word made carries the idea of cultivation. So God's work is to create, and that which he created, he also cultivates so that it will thrive and flourish. And so in that sense, any time that we are creating or cultivating, we are saying we are bearing the image of God by working in that way, whether we're paid to do it or we're not. That's what we mean by work. So let's, let's clarify then. Work would include your job. Work is going to school. But work is also family relationships. Are you cultivating family relationships? Yes, then that, that falls within the definition of work. Are you preparing meals, creating beauty, cultivating order? Yes. As you discipline your kids, as you do at-home projects, even as you're on vacation, are you creating and cultivating in that time on vacation? Yes, this is a broad, holistic definition of work. Anytime you create or cultivate, that is work. Okay, so it's a bit of definition there, and over the next four weeks, we'll kind of continue to expand and explain what we mean by work, um, but that needs to be said at the outset. As we jump into how we see work in creation, that work is God's idea is the title of today's sermon, let me pray for us as we dig in a little bit deeper to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, uh, and we'll go from there. God, thank you for the good gift you've given us of work, the satisfaction that can be found in work, your provision that we find in work. Help us this morning to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you're doing in the world. May we see your truth from your word with clarity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the outline I want to use this morning is real simple. It's just this. We're going to have one main idea. We're going to look at two aspects of our work, and then we'll see three myths that we believe. Okay, one main idea, two aspects of our work, three myths we believe. So the main idea is this, all work is good. All work is good. 
By the way, anytime you're creating or cultivating, that's a good thing. And work is good, first off, because God does it. And because God does this, it is a good thing. We just saw that in Genesis 2-3. But then what we read in Genesis 1-26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Work is also good because we have the opportunity to do what God does. God says it's a core part of our purpose to have dominion over the earth, to create and cultivate. And so it's not just something that God does, but it's actually something that God says we need. Think about that for a second. You don't just work so that you can make money and live. No, God actually has given you work to do as a means of finding satisfaction in your soul. You will be dissatisfied on this earth unless you are working and creating and cultivating in the way that God has wired you to do so. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, according to the Bible, we don't merely need the money from work to survive. We need the work itself to survive and live fully human lives. You see, it's, it's not just that we work, like I said, to, to get the money and to provide for our families, but because God has created you to work. Work is his gift to you, you might say. And because all work is good, one of the other things that means is that there's no division of manual labor versus desk jobs, blue collar versus white collar, you might say. There's no hierarchy there. Right? What does God do in Genesis 1? He creates and cultivates a garden. God's a gardener. And when Jesus comes to the earth, what does he come as? He comes as a carpenter. Both of these being manual labor types of jobs. So this this division that one may be better than another is not a division or an an idea that you find in the Bible. And this would have defied expectations back in the ancient world for Jesus to come, for the king to come as a manual laborer. But we've got to recognize all work is good according to the Bible. Work, as we've said, is God's provision for your soul. But it's more than that. You see, work is God's provision for the entire world, not just your soul. So in Psalm 145, when it says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. The natural question is, God, how are you feeding the whole world? Well, Martin Luther would say it's through the farmers. And I would add through truck drivers and through grocery store attendants. That God is feeding the whole world, and your work in those ways contributes to God's provision for the entire world. Or Psalm 147 reads, He strengthens the bars of your gates. Psalm 147 there is talking about a, a society being formed and strengthened. And how does that happen? How does God strengthen the societies in which we live? Well, it's through through legislators and through attorneys and through data entry clerks that are working in those offices. And so God is providing for the world through the people doing that kind of work, those kinds of work. St. Augustine in the third century would write that God spoke to his conscience through his parents and his teachers. Right, so you see that work is God's provision for your soul, but it's also his provision for the entire world, that when you do your work well, he's providing for everyone in that way. Now come back to Genesis one twenty six with me, and let's just read slowly one word at a time because there's something that um, can, can slip past us that we miss here about work. Then God said, let, what's that next word? 
us make man in our image. Now, who is on the earth right now? Just God. But he said, let us, plural, make man in our image, plural. Right? And so while you don't find the word Trinity in Genesis 1 or actually anywhere in the Bible, from the very beginning, you see the idea here of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the plurality of God, three persons, one God, being taught. And that the work was done in community. And so it doesn't mean that if you've got a desk job or you're in a cubicle, that your kind of work is somehow like less valuable to God or anything like that. No, no, no. It just means that we should seek ways in which our work can enrich community because God's work is done in community. All right? You've got to see ways that your work is God's good provision for your soul. And if you don't see that, if you don't see the goodness of God in that, then you're not going to experience the fullness of life that God has intended for you. You're going to be understanding work through the lens that you want to understand, understand it, rather than through the lens that God has ordained. Isaiah 48 comments on this. Isaiah brings the word of the Lord, and it says, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. God's saying, this is what's best for you. Work is my good gift to you. All work is good. That's our one main idea. Now we move on to our two aspects of work. And the first aspect of work, we've already talked about a bit, but it is to create beauty. Create beauty. Now obviously here, God's creation is different than our creation in that God creates out of nothing. There is no material. He speaks it, and it exists. Obviously, we're not like that. We're unlike him in that way. But we create out of existing materials. So maybe we're creating new things, like a new product is created. If you're in the medical field, a new treatment plan, and you look at that plan, man, what this will bring is beautiful. So I'm creating beauty in a treatment plan that brings healing and health to the soul and to the body. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you're thinking of how can I create a new beautiful thing, a new beautiful place for my kids? Right, Emily did this a bit ago. We had uh, our girls were in the kitchen all the time and kind of hanging out, and we wanted them to be more producers than consumers. And so we put an art table and a kitchen set right in our kitchen so that as we're there for meals, it just becomes normal to be a producer instead of a consumer. She created a space. You can see a picture of it here on the screen where we built that, and then we actually, we, uh, I didn't tell them to build the Tower of Babel, but they tried to anyways. Um, but you see that in the kitchen right there, that physical space had already existed, right? It's not like they created space out of nothing, but she took the space there and created a new kind of space. And that's a beautiful thing to see kids as producers, not just as consumers, right? Maybe you're a teacher and you're creating a new class and what it's going to teach these kids is a beautiful thing. And so you're creating beauty in that way. But to create beauty isn't just to create new things, but it's also to create a new way of doing things. So the easiest to see is to do it with excellence. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There's a new way to eat. There's a new way to drink. There's a new way to do whatever you're doing. There's a beautiful way of doing that. 
But there's also, there's, there's more nuance to that, right? There's a new ethos that can be created, a new way of doing things. So if you've got a data entry job, it's not just doing it with precision, but also with joy. If you're a junior high student, it's not just getting your work done for the grade, but actually getting it done with gratitude to your teachers, as opposed to trying to make their life difficult the last week of school. That's a new way of doing things, and it's a beautiful way of doing things. If you're a manager or a sales rep, new way of doing things is not seeing your employees or your, um, your customers as people and accounts to be leveraged, but as opportunities to bless them. In church relationships, this new way of doing things is when there's a need, it's not just merely tagging on their, hey, I'll pray for you, but listening to what Galatians 6.1 says, hey, I will actually bear that burden in love, and I'm going to help carry it for you. That's a new way of doing things. It's a beautiful way of doing things. So one of the aspects of work is that we are creating beauty. And I just ask you this morning, have you considered, think about this right now, have you considered the ways in which God has equipped you to create beauty in your work? Have you considered that? What does that look like for you in whatever kind of work God has given you? Okay, the second aspect of our work is to cultivate order. To cultivate order. By that, we just mean establishing fertile conditions for an existing thing to survive and thrive. You want to establish the conditions so that something that already exists, that's already been created, it can not only survive, but also thrive. Look back at Genesis 1.28 with me. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it cultivate order. Go, go make babies. It's going to take a lot of you to do this. And then fan out and start subduing the earth and cultivating it so that it can not only survive, but also thrive. So when I think about this idea of cultivating order, I think of a, a garden bed that I might work on. I, I think of at least three aspects where I'm going, to, um, I'm going to put some boundaries to it. I'm going to pull the weeds out of it. I'm going to fertilize it, right? And if I think about that, that cultivating, the cultivating of that garden bed that I'm doing it has to be on the basis of the needs of the plant. So in other words, if I'm planting an oak tree, I'm not going to put it in one of those hanging things that you put in the entryway. That's not what's good for an oak tree. It might be convenient for me, but I'm cultivating based on the needs of the oak tree. Or if I put some flowers in, I'm not going to leave a dozen dandelions in the garden right there. The colors may go well together, but that's not good for the flower I planted. Right? Or if I think about the fertilizing, if I just planted a bunch of grass yesterday in my yard, okay? And one of the things that Ed Bergen told me I need to not do is I need to not fertilize it for like at least 30 days because I can put the fertilizer down right now. If that fertilizer, that 12-12-12 comes in contact with the seed, it's actually going to burn out the grass and destroy it. It's more convenient yesterday. I was already dirty and sweaty. It's like, hey, it's a good time to put it down. But you have to cultivate the newly planted grass on the basis of what's best for the grass, so the idea of cultivating order is always on the basis of the thing that you're trying to cultivate, not on what's good for you. So let's just let's pivot out of gardener mode for a second now and think about the rest of our life briefly here. Husbands and wives, are you cultivating your spouse based on what you will get back from them? Or are you thinking about how can I create beauty and cultivate order in your life based on what's good for you and what you need? Fathers and mothers, is the cultivation you do in the life of your kids, is it just so that they will behave decently when you're in Kroger and you won't look bad? 
or is it cultivating based on the needs of each individual child? Vocationally, are you cultivating based on what will expedite your promotion and raise? Or are you cultivating based on what the needs of the company are and the needs of your boss are and the needs of that customer are? See, not only is this hard to to take the the inward focus of how I do this and transfer it to an outward focus to someone else, it's actually impossible for us. Like, that's not a change you can make on your own. It's not something you can white-knuckle, hey, I just got to focus on others, focus on others, focus on others. No, like, you don't have the strength to do that. That is only the Spirit of God working in you that can take that inward bend and turn it outward so that you are genuinely focused on others and their good. When you embrace life as many spheres of work in which you create beauty and in which you cultivate order, you'll begin to experience the satisfaction in work that God intends for you. And it takes intentionality to see those things. Right? So we've seen one main idea, that all work is good. And we've seen two aspects of our work, that we are creating beauty and we're cultivating order. Lastly, we have three myths that we believe about work. Three myths. First myth. I'm really doing God's work when it's spiritual. Air quotes there. This takes the form of, hey, I'm really doing God's work when I start a Bible study at work. Or I'm really doing God's work when I make a bunch of money and give it to the missionaries overseas. Or I'm really doing God's work when I'm evangelizing at work. Or I'm really doing God's work when I use my retirement years to do ministry. Or I'm really doing God's work when I'm volunteering after hours at the church or the school. See, all of these are versions of that myth where I say I'm really doing God's work when it's spiritual. But this myth would mean that work itself is not inherently good. God says otherwise. This myth would imply that your work as a dad is nothing more than family devotions. Your work as a husband is nothing more than praying with your wife. This would imply that your work at your job has zero intrinsic value. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is through the story of Eric Little. Eric Little was an Olympic runner for uh, Scotland in the 1920s. He grew up as a missionary kid in China. And so as he's kind of debating his life as a young man, saying, do I go back to China and I continue as a missionary, or do I, I run in the Olympics and train for them? And uh, his, his sister Jenny and he were discussing, and she badly wanted him to go back to China. She felt like he was selling out if he would do anything but go back to China. And Eric comes to her and he says, I've decided. I'm going back to China. The missionary service has accepted me. And of course, she's elated. She's jumping up and down. She gives him a hug. She's, she's just thrilled that he's not sacrificed the good work of God for the, the menial, silly work of athletics. And Eric continues, though. He says, but I've got a lot of running to do first. Jenny, you've got to understand, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. You were right. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. And there's this view we've got that just like Eric, we are 
we're not embracing the work that God has given us and the skills he's given us as, as his good gift. And we ought to feel his pleasure. Like if you're a spreadsheet guy, like feel the pleasure of God in Excel. Love that. And to give that up would be to hold God in contempt. And to win at spreadsheeting is to honor him. Like we're not used to thinking about it in these ways. But this is the gift that God has given you to satisfy your soul and to bless the world. Embrace it and live in it. First myth, I'm really doing God's work when it's quote-unquote spiritual. Second myth, work is a necessary evil. Work is a necessary evil. And so this is verbalized in things like, hey, another day, another dollar. Work is just how I feed my family. Or maybe, maybe the flip side of it, you say, vacation and leisure are the real good things in life. So it's kind of backwards there, right? I, I endure work so that I can do the really good things, like go on vacation and you know, go to Dodger games. And Oh, wait, only one person goes to Dodger games. <laughs> um, but, but that sort of thing, right? You say, work is a necessary evil, and I just endure it. But this myth says the exact same thing as the first myth. What does it say that's the same? It says work is not inherently good. God, again, says otherwise. And how do we know this is a myth? Because here we're reading in Genesis 1 about God doing work and God commissioning us to work, and sin has not yet entered the world. We're still in Genesis 1. Genesis 3 is where sin enters the world. So work is not a result of the fall. No, work is part of God's good plan for your life. This also means that work is not given to us because it was beneath God. Like, work is not the thing that gets to you because it wasn't worthy of being on the boss's desk. No, God comes down and works and then says, hey, you bear my image and be like me as you work. Work is actually how we bear the image of God. So do you want to show the world what God is like? Create beauty and cultivate order. See, God's good plan for humanity, this is before the fall, was always living in this constant cycle of work and rest. Now, a fallen world and the difficulty of work makes it easy for us to see work as simply something that we must endure, but that's not actually a biblical view. I'm reminded of uh, Miley Cyrus' song maybe a decade or so ago, The Climb, right? You enjoyed that. Um, And the point of the song is it's not about just getting to the top of the mountain. There's something in the journey that I'm supposed to embrace and enjoy, and that's where satisfaction is found. And this idea that work is a necessary evil is kind of like, hey, I'm just here to make it to the mountaintop. I'm just here to make it to heaven and maybe get a few more people there with me. And God's saying, no, 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 I've actually got something way more significant for you here, that you would be satisfied and find joy and life in your work and show others what I'm like through your work. Work is one of God's designed ways to give you a full and a satisfying life. Third myth, that job will satisfy me. That job will satisfy me. And this, frankly, is where idolatry strikes us in the workplace, We can understand this in a nine-to-five sort of sense of working for that employer, working for that boss, working in that kind of environment would satisfy me. But because work is much broader than our nine-to-five and what we get paid to do, there's also far more personal implications of this where we say things like, man, if if I was married to that man or that woman, maybe I'd actually be satisfied. Or 
if I was married at all, maybe I would be satisfied. Or if, if I could have a child, then I would be satisfied. If I had that kind of work, if I had the opportunity to create beauty and cultivate order in the life of a child. Or maybe say, if I had those kind of church relationships, then I'd really be satisfied. If I didn't have to sit next to all these hypocrites every week, welcome to the club, we're all there. Maybe say, if I had those kind of relationships in my community, then I'd really be satisfied. If I could create beauty and cultivate order in those relationships, then I'd be satisfied in life. The reality is, we all do this in some way. We all do it, but we're blind to it. Right? If, if you commit adultery, you step into bed with that man or that woman, you know what you're doing. If you're cheating on a test, finals week is coming up, you're looking across and you guys are kind of tag-teaming to make sure you both get an A. You know what you're doing. Right? With idolatry of work and idolatry of kids, I'll say, because kids is a form of our work, it's one of the most insidious things because we never recognize we're there. You get caught cheating on a test, you say, yeah, I need, to, I need to confess that. But how often do you hear people saying, yeah, I've completely idolized my work, it is my God, and I'm just trying to keep up with the Joneses and keep this public appearance right? You don't hear people say that. When you hear people say, man, I tell you, I have completely idolized my kids. They are at the center of my universe, and I, would just, I couldn't deal with it if they went off the rails. Nobody says that. But are you trying to tell me that child idolatry and workaholism is not rampant in suburban Brownsburg, Indiana? Like, it's everywhere. We're blind to this myth. We believe this myth way more than we think we do. We need to ask God to help us to see inside of our own hearts and see to what extent have we believed this myth. It's in these moments that we actually find ourselves looking for a different kind of work, a different kind of relationship to cultivate, a different place of work, perhaps. And the thing that we've got to remember in this is with our work, God never gets the address wrong. With your work, God never gets the address wrong. What do I mean by that? He has you doing exactly the kind of work he wants you doing. And he has you doing that work in the exact place he wants you doing it, at the exact time he wants you doing it. He doesn't get the address wrong. Acts 17 says, God has established the boundaries of where you will live and what you will do. Ephesians 2 says, God has prepared good deeds in eternity past for you to walk in them. Where you're at and what you're doing is not a surprise and it's not on accident. It's where God wants you. So don't wish it away hoping for something else that you think would be better. Ultimately, this message isn't for the guy in front of you, the girl behind you. It's for you right now. Think about that. What does God have you doing that maybe you don't want to lean into and you don't want to do right now, but you know deep down that that's where you are called to create beauty and cultivate order? This myth right here, I said it was kind of insidious, and it's the one that a lot of us believe. It's actually the one that Adam and Eve believed and got them off the rails. Look back at the copy of the Scriptures. We're going to turn over to Genesis 3 here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So look, if I had that fruit, because it's good for the eyes and it's good for eating, if I had that, I'd be satisfied, and I would be wise and I would be like God and have eyes to see like him. If I was like God, I would be satisfied. In a sense, it was a gateway drug for her. If I do this, I'll get what I want and I'll really be satisfied. And so in response, they rebel against God's plan, what he had laid out for their lives. Look back at verse 7 now. We continue. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They they take some clothes with the fig leaves, they put them together, and God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And as they go out into this, this world that they're in, wild and untamed, rugged world, it's as if God looks down on them and says, Adam and Eve, I provided for your souls in your work. And you chose to rebel and go your own way. And you see that you've made a mess, and you're trying to clean up your mess on your own by creating those leaves. But do you see how rugged that world is out there? There's no way that fig leaf shirt is going to work. That's not going to hold up. So God, in the midst of their rebellion, continues the goodness of his provision for them. You're in Genesis 3. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He said, you're going to need a leather shirt and leather pants and a leather skirt. Is that, that kale skirt? That's not working, man. It's not going to hold up. And so before mankind has gone off the rails, God is providing for them. And in the midst of going off the rails, he is providing for them. And to bring that leather outfit to them, what had to die? An animal did. Because our rebellion against God always, always, always results in death. It always does. And so in our lives, God has not only provided work for the benefit of our souls, but he's actually seen the ways in which we've rebelled against him, and we've broken that relationship with God, and it's ruined. And the death that would come to make that right is actually through Jesus Christ coming to this earth to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, but he died the death that we were supposed to die. The provision of God doesn't stop when we rebel and go our own way. No, it continues throughout. It's his love on display for us. And this is good news. You see the gospel being foreshadowed even in the first three chapters of Genesis in really significant and powerful ways. So this morning, as as we go to communion, what I want you to do, I want you to reflect on the provision of God and the goodness of God in your life. The good gift of work that he's given to you. But also, as you have rebelled against him and chosen to go your own way, the ongoing provision he's made for you through his son, Jesus, to give you a relationship with him again. This is an amazing gift of God, amazing goodness of God that we see here. Communion is for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member here. But as you drink the juice, as you eat the bread, reflect on the goodness of God, the provision of God in your life. Pray with me now. 
Father God, we're thankful for your love in our lives. We're thankful for your goodness on display through our work. We're thankful ultimately, God, for the goodness of your provision in the person of Jesus Christ. May we live in light of your goodness, in light of your love, in light of your provision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.